want a bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of shelf indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. I want to hear it. I want to read it. I want to bid up. Hello, and welcome to this week's Indulgence of Shelfness. Shelf Indulgence, your weekly dose of everything bookish, book related, and literary from your local radio station, Micro Brute Radio. It is I, Jim. I'm joined again this week by Wendy. Hello, Wendy. Hi. Hi, everybody. And we're going to be, we're doing something a bit different this week. We're not, we haven't read the same book. We haven't read a book in particular. This week, myself and Wendy have indulged ourselves in reading for pleasure. And that got my brain working. And we're going to discuss reading for pleasure. We're going to discuss um, the way we teach reading, the way that um, the the uproar that has been brought about by this year's Year 6 reading paper, and also um, the usual features of Poetry Corner and What Has Granny Read. So, Wendy, start me off with what have you been reading this week when you could choose anything you wanted? Where did you go? Um, I went to Ellie Griffiths. Oh. Um, and <laughs> and I had um, actually a neighbour uh, gave me um, a, a book that she'd just finished reading. And it's number four in the uh, Nelson and Ruth Galloway series. Um, and it's called A Room Full of Bones. Um, and I just thought, do you know what? That's a bit that's a bit of a palate cleanser from the stuff that we've been reading for the last uh, few weeks. So um, I thoroughly immersed myself in that. And what what about me? I I know you're a murder mystery th- thriller reader. I know that's your your wheelhouse. But what what about that? I mean, is it is it just because it was given, or when when searching for something to read for pleasure? What is it that brings you to those books? Um, I've got a, I've got a fair quantity of them, so, so availability's there. Um, and we've both got a fairly high, highly stacked um, to be read pile, haven't we? Well, so I could have taken anything. Not sure, we're not short of choices to choose we're from. Certainly not. No. So I could have taken anything off that pile. Um, I think as it, it was one that was loaned to me. Um, I wanted to read it and return in a reasonable amount of time. Um, but I just, I like the, it's, it's like your comfy slippers. You just, you go back and they just slip on and they fit perfectly and they give you a sense of comfort and you can just relax and not think of anything other than enjoying the story. And, um, and actually I needed that this week. So that's why. Um, Ellie Griffiths was that that uh, first port of call for me. How about you? What did you read this week, Jim? I've read so much, and I don't mean uh, I've read hundreds of books or I've read a whole. I've not read an entire book at all all week. Mm. Um, but I have been reading partly for work and partly for pleasure. So um, I, I tutor, and at the moment it's exam season, so many of my GCSE students preparing for uh, the the exam of English literature this week, um, and I've been doing some reading around that. I've uh, read um, some Harry Potter, not an entirety of anything, but I've just 
dipped my toe back into a bit of Harry Potter because, mm. again, for me, it's that reassurance and comfiness and pleasure. Mm. From, oh, I'm, I'm revisiting old friends here. Mm. You know? I know um, exactly what you mean. But equally, I've I've dipped my toe um, back into a little bit of Pratchett as well. I picked up a Pratchett at random and just read a bit of that. I've read some of St Mary's, uh, the Chronicles of St Mary's. And I've just, it's not, I've just enjoyed picking up different books and reading a bit from each one and going, oh, mm. I, I love these characters, I love these people. And they are like old friends. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose I wanted to ask you, Andy, what is it? Because there are books that we read that under no circumstances, <clears throat> I know, under no, like people could offer me vast sums of money and I would not want to read that book again. Mm. And I'm not going to name names. <clears throat> but, you know, there have been some. There certainly have. Um, so what is it about these books? What is it about a story that makes it worth rereading? Because um, some people don't get this at all. Some people, I've read that one, why would I read it again? There's yeah, lots of yeah. books to read. Why would I bother? Why would I bother going back and reading that again? So what do you think it is about? Because like, I know, I know for a fact <clears throat> that if I said to you, Right, Wendy, it's all gone wrong. The plan for next week's gone to pot. Let's both read Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. We could both pick it up and enjoy it as much as we did the first time we read it. Absolutely. So why? What is it about these stories, these characters? What is it that makes them so enjoyable time and time again? I, th- I think that if characterisation is vivid, um, then your imagination takes you on that journey. But I also, I've been thinking a lot about about poetic writing. So I don't mean writing poetry, I mean poetic writing. And for me, there are a number of really good authors that write poetically, in that there is a rhythm, almost a melody, to the way that they write. And you interpret that as you're reading it. And, and in actual facts, if you'll indulge for a minute. Yeah, by all means. I have this week not bought a poem um, for Poetry Corner. Um, so I can sort of slip it in because it isn't Poetry Corner. <clears throat> what I've bought is a letter. And this letter was supposedly written by John Steinbeck to Marilyn Monroe. Now, you may have come across this letter before. I don't know whether you have. Um, but I'm going to read you this letter. And this is what I mean by poetic writing. And this is what draws me back to certain books that allows me to read them over and over again because of the rhythm and the melody in the way that they're in. So this is this is a letter from John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath, uh, to Mallory Monroe, um, uh, supposedly written in 1955. Dear Marilyn, in my whole experience, I've never known anyone to ask for an autograph for himself. It's always for a child or an ancient aunt, which gets very tiresome, as you know better than I. It is, therefore, with a certain nausea that I tell you that I have a nephew-in-law who lives in Austin, Texas, whose name is John Atkin. He has his foot in the door of puberty, but that is only one of his problems. <laughs> you are the other one. I know that you're not made of celestial ether, but he doesn't. A suggestion that you have normal functions would shock him deeply, and I'm not going to be the one to tell him. On a recent trip to Texas, my wife made the fatal error of telling John that I had met you. 
He doesn't really believe it, but his respect for me has gone up, even for lying about it. Now, I get asked for all kinds of silly favours, so I have no hesitation in asking one from you. Would you send him, in my care, a picture of yourself, perhaps in pensive girlish mood, inscribed to him by name and indicating that you you are aware of his existence? He's already your slave. This would make him mine. If you will do this, I will send you a guest key to the ladies' entrance of Fort Knox. And furthermore, I will like you very much. Yours sincerely, John Steinbeck. How charming. Now, I just, the rhythm of that of that letter is just perfect. The <laughs> humour is understated. The way he writes that appeal to someone it it would just be she wouldn't be able to refuse that and and there is some i i've i've said this but there is some speculation about whether he actually wrote it so we're not quite sure whether whether he did but for me that is a a lovely example of poetic writing there is a rhythm to it it tells a story it, it is almost a short story on a single sheet of paper and i absolutely love it and it gives me pleasure when i read it and as I'm reading it and I'm thinking about the imagery that it brings up, um, it just makes me smile, Jim. Yeah. I, well, I'm, do you know what? I'm going to join in. <clears throat> I happen to have in front of me, because I've just been teaching you, <clears throat> A Christmas Carol. All right, yeah. Dickens. Now, I am somewhat a fan of Charles Dickens. Oh, I do know that, Jim, yeah. And he has a way about him that is just so clever. So I'd like to read to you the opening of A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead. Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. <clears throat> now, 
Why do I choose that? Again, do you know what? There's this mastery of the language. Yeah, absolutely. Dickens writes with such ease and confidence and assurance that he puts the reader at ease. Yeah. You know, here is a man of undoubted um, academic brilliance, you know, possibly the best writer of all time in the English language. Um, And, you know, we've got this jovial, witty repartee and banter about how Deladorne is, which does absolutely nothing to further the plot. But he's he's making you feel welcome. He's making you feel at ease. He's talking to you like an old friend. And it's also, he's using that as a device to set you up for the shock that comes... When Marley is... With Marley, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that is the cleverness of writers, that what they should do is they should set the stage and, and lure you in and then have the ability to turn the tables on you. I'm not sure I could fit another metaphor into that, but, but do you know what I mean? That's exactly what they do. They lure you in. You 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 follow them willingly, almost blindly, um, and then they turn the tables on you. And it, and it's that for me. That's what gives me pleasure when I'm reading. It's it's that um, that that welcome, and then the twist. And I yeah, just and also feeling like you're in a safe pair of hands. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> the way you know, if you've never read Dickens, just the the nature of the speech there, it ma- it makes you feel like, oh, I, I'm I'm in the hands of a well knowledgeable storyteller. Here is a man who knows how to tell a yarn. I'm okay here. I'm safe. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, and I think that there are people who are able to weave a story, um, and it is almost it's almost like casting a spell. Because you get drawn in to the degree where you can um, envisage yourself almost as as one of the onlookers. You're, you're standing on the yeah. sidelines, but you're there. Um, and there are there are there are a lot of good writers that do that. Um, but actually, the more we read, and we've cast our net fairly widely over the last few years while we've been doing the show. What you realise is that just because you've had a book published doesn't mean to say that you're one of those writers. Because we've read some fantastic stuff, Jim, but my goodness me, we've read some lemons as well, haven't we? We have read some lemons and we've read good stories that are hard reads. Mm, mm. Um, You know, I, I think to aspire to the mastery of Dickens or Steinbeck is, you know, a lofty ambition indeed. But you've got here, you know, to acknowledge that there are writers who have this ability to storytell. That's absolutely right. I mean, um, the book that I've been reading this week is um, Ruth Galloway, for people who haven't read Ellie Griffiths and the Ruth Galloway series. Ruth Galloway is a, um, she's a forensic anthropologist and she uh, she looks at, she studies bones and um, she has worked quite closely on different cases with the lead policeman, uh, Detective Inspector Nelson. Um, and uh, but she brings her own expertise to this. And in this story, 
Um, it, it deals with the fact that they have uncovered um, a, a local uh, saint, uh, a local bishop that was um, beatified. And um, they thought he was buried somewhere else, and it turns out he wasn't. He was buried under a supermarket, and um, and they've uh, and they found him, and they they're bringing him back to um, to the abbey where he was, uh, where he made his fame and fortune. And um, they've got the coffin in a museum that is dedicated to this this bishop, and they open the coffin um, against all sorts of um, against all sorts of warnings. Because the person who set this um, museum up um, is also, apart from being someone that that was very interested in history, and this bishop was uh, part of his ancestry, he was also guilty of bringing back, he spent a lot of time in Australia, and he brought back bones from Australia. And he talks in the, the story, she talks about... How in history in the eighteenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century, early nineteenth century, um, Aborigines were actually hunted in, in the way that um, in the way that game would be hunted, um, and and their bones were brought back as trophies, um, and they're they're all over the world, and there is a in the in the book there is a, a group called the elgonists i wonder why um and the elgonists job is to track down these remains and then return them to their homeland um because obviously they're human remains and they need to be dealt with um you know, in a sensitive way and, and with respect and what's brilliant about this story is it weaves in those threads of real history it weaves. It, it tells them through um, the fictional eyes of of the family members who um, are relating this story, and she's picking up the pieces of this, and um, and it's tied into a a mystery that happens in the story in the in this moment in the present. Um, and what I love about that is that all of those threads form a really colourful cloth that you you're actually looking at something where all of those threads interweave and you get the outcome at the end that you want because you get the conclusion of that um but it is just it's lovely to meander through this series of plots and and wonder what's going to happen and then get your resolution at the end and that for me is a great storyteller Somebody that can weave a cloth like that through from different threads and keep your interest right to the last page. Um, and and there are authors like that, and you've mentioned a couple there. Um, you know, I think Dickens is is absolutely one of that, and and Christmas Carol is my favourite. Um, but there are others. You know, J. M. Barry. If you've ever read any of J. M. Barry's, not the not the Peter Pan stuff, but if you've read his other stuff like Quality Street and there are a few others. Um, absolutely wonderful storytelling. I mean, there is without doubt something in my mind that is it, it is in our genes. We are we are genetically disposed to be storytellers because mm. it is part of who we are as a society, as a culture. It is how we have developed, anthropologically speaking, you know, <clears throat> what sets us aside from the others, the others being the other intelligent life forms. Well, 
we've mastered, and I mean mastered, the art of storytelling. Mm. Because through storytelling, we teach. Yeah, absolutely. And through storytelling, we learn. And from there comes the birth of education, the birth of learning. Um, You know, that there is, uh, my, my granddad always said it to me, there's two ways to learn everything, the easy way and the hard way. And the easy way is from somebody else's experience. And it's that shared, learned knowledge so that you don't have to, if every human had to start from rediscovering fire, we'd never have got this far. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think in terms of that and the storytelling innateness of who we are, it does then make me wonder why so many, well, I, I say wonder, um, I have, I have a theory on this, but why do so many children loathe reading? I think that you you have to teaching a kid to read. I think it's about timing. So uh, so I think it's about first of all it's about shared experience. So children that are read to in their very early days when they can't read for themselves, it's part of their process of development as a human being. It isn't just learning to read or listening to a story. It develops so many things. And I was watching a TED Talk um, this week, um, a young girl who was uh, 10 years old, who was giving a TED Talk, and it was about why parents need to play with babies um, in their first five years. And she was saying that in their first five years, that is their formative time. And everything that they become, the foundation is set during those five years. And so when parents read to their children, you know, when they're, when they're babies and even before they can understand and follow a story, what they're actually doing is connecting and helping them to develop neuropathways. And the more interaction a child has, whether it's just being read a story or whether it's playing peekaboo with them or whether it's, um, you know, playing a repetitive game or rolling a ball or whatever it is, that human interaction is forcing the creation of more and more neural networks. And without it, they won't be able to develop at the same rate and they won't um, it will be difficult for them to form things like relationships because all of that stuff is there. So when you're reading to a child, it isn't just about reading a story. There is so much more that's involved with it. And I'm not sure, A, that we fully understand that and we appreciate it, but I don't think we take the time to do that with kids. I mean, I remember, I don't know what, what school curriculums are like now, but I remember when I was at school and I was lit, really little and I was in the infant school. I don't understand the years, Jim, so you'll have to forgive me. But but when I was in the infant school, um, every day, the last half an hour was the teacher reading. And she used to read a chapter or a couple of chapters and it finished on a cliffhanger. And you went off home really excited that you'd, you'd read it. And you couldn't wait to go back the following day and find out what happened next. Um, and for me, it was that that fueled my love of reading. Now, if that's not done or the only experience you have of books is a forced experience, reading stuff that doesn't interest you, reading stuff that doesn't inspire you, 
or is just deadly dull, why would you go and do it for yourself for pleasure? Indeed. I mean, <clears throat> I've done a fair amount of supply teaching and um, most of it in primary school settings. And I will say that gem- a lot of schools um, will have, you know, when the children come in after lunch, 10 minutes silent reading. Or there'll be some point in the day where there's 10 minutes silent reading. And some children will relish this. Mm. I remember myself being a child that whenever we were, whenever we were told, okay, get your reading books out and read silently, I was like, yes. Yeah, I oh know. I was exactly the yeah. same. Because it was my time to read my book and go off on an adventure in my own mind. Um, but I sit in classrooms as a teacher watching the children's response to silent reading time. And you get those children that behave the same way as we did, Wendy. But there's a, then there are children who will spend the whole time of silent reading getting up, going to the bookcase, picking a book up, coming back down, sitting at it, flicking through it, going back and changing the book and doing the same thing over and over. Mm. Because they've no interest. They're not engaged with what they're reading. They're not, they're not buying into it. Now, I think the unhealthiest of habits that happens in schools and in homes up and down the country is forcing children to read. Because when you force a child to read, they're going to resent that, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And without any doubt, you then resenting the act of reading is going to have a long-lasting psychological effect on you. Mm. Now, when it comes to storytelling, there is... There is a, a, a there is a part of who we are and part of what we do and where we where we tell a story and when we tell a story there are certain techniques and devices that we go to that we know and we use and <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna turn back to Dickens here because Dickens himself does it on page eleven of A Christmas Carol but what did Scrooge care it was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. Once upon a time. Now, just by the use of that one phrase, Dickens has told us it's okay. Mm-mm. This is the start of the story. Everything that's come before was conversation. It was all settling in. Mm, mm, but now, once upon a time, here starts the story. And also, by the use of the phrase once upon a time, we all know that every story that starts once upon a time ends, and they all live happily, happily ever. ever. <laughs> so we relax. We know it's going to be okay. And techniques and devices like that, put us in those comfy, safe places. So then to take a child and force them to read something they they don't like is... Have you heard of the rights of the reader, Wendy? Yes, I have, yeah. Yes, now the rights of the reader, the right right not to read. Yes, yeah. Absolutely important, because we're not all readers. You know, some people's brains just don't work that way. Mm. Um, Even if we have been read to as children, some of us aren't readers. Mm. Um, and that's really important because otherwise this negative relationship with reading begins and lasts. Have you ever wondered 
If you can take part in Microbrew Radio as a volunteer, well, you can. Simply email us on microbrewradio at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch on one of the many social media services, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, at microbrewradio. Hmm, get in touch now. Hmm. Right, shall we, shall we meander briefly to Poetry Corner? All right, then. Because I have brought a poem. Okay. And this poem is, I think, very relevant because it's a bit of a story. Oh, okay, then. This is called My Last Duchess by Robert Browning. Mm. I'll set the scene for you. This is uh, the Duke of Ferrara. He's the person talking. Mm. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Would please you sit and look at her? I said Fra Pandolf by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance. But to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you, but I, and seemed as they would ask me, if they durst, how such a glance came there. So not the first are you to turn and ask thus. Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the Duchess's cheek. Perhaps Frappandoff chanced to say her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the paint, half flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart. How shall I say? Too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whate'er she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, t'was all one. My favour at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries from a fishers fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with around the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech, or blush. At least she thanked them. Good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling? Even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such an one and say, just this or that in you disgusts me. Here you miss or there exceed the mark, and if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours forsooth and made excuse, e'en then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? This grew. I gave commands... Then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Would please you rise? We'll meet the company below then. I repeat, the Count, your master's known munificence, is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed, though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed, at starting is my object. Nay, we'll go together down, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity. Which Klaus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me? Now, I think that's a, a really, really interesting choice. Because if you were to start 
children reading with that sort of language, I think that they would struggle. They would struggle because it's not easy language, is it? It's not easy language at all. And it is not of their time and it is not of their understanding. And if that is the exposure that they have to literature, it's the age-old argument about at what point do you introduce children to Shakespeare? Because if the language is a barrier itself, then do they tar every book with a sign brush? And that's the danger. The key is, I think, to get children intrigued and interested in reading and then allow them to explore for themselves what they enjoy. Now, I know you can't do that in school because you've got a curriculum to follow, but I'm not I'm not convinced that the curriculum setters really understand how children have changed. No. So my last Duchess that I've just read, written much later than it sounds from its language, you... What, you know, it's language sounds... I would have said 16, 1600, 1700s. Yeah. No, 1842. Right. But Robert Browning was obsessed with the 14th to 16th centuries in Italy, the Renaissance. Right. So, so that speaks volumes then. Yeah. And um, this, this, you know, we get this lovely story about, you know, the, the, Duke, the Duke of Ferrara is taking this guest on a tour of his artworks... And one of his artworks is his last Duchess. And then we get this reveal at the end that the, the, the guy on the tour is the guy that's been sent to set up the next marriage. Mm. And they're like, oh, okay. And why is he making such a point about the, his last Duchess? Well, we all know which how she ended. Mm. Um, and part of why I chose this poem is because it has that lovely storytelling quality. That, and I think... Again, highlights a point for me that's very important. Now, I know this poem, I know this poem well, so I can read it with intonation, I can give it life, yeah, I can give absolutely. it character expression, yeah. which makes it easier to understand. Mm. That poem is on the GCSE curriculum this year for English literature. Okay. So unless you've got a... So so just remind me of the age group. Is that 15 so that, to... Yeah, so GCSE is school leavers before they go into sixth form college. So fifteen to sixteen. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you've got um, what I would call an avid reader, reading reading some of the classic art, the, some of the classic authors like Dickens and and um, uh, Austin and uh, you know those those sort of the the sort of stock in trade authors. Um, they may well come to grips with a poem like that. If you've got 15 to 16... How many 15, 16-year-olds who, who are reading for pleasure are reading those authors? Well, exactly. That's it, that's it, exactly. There will be a few, but they are absolutely the minority, Jim. And, and if you're setting a piece like that that is so out of the understanding, it's so far the mark of what the culture of 15 to 16-year-olds is today. Where were you? you, you you're on a hiding to nothing, aren't you? To, to attract kids, to want them, to get them to want to read. If that's the stuff you're putting in front of them, then you, you're just, that's going to be a big fail. It's not going to work. No, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I'm sat now with the anthology of poetry for the Power and Conflict module, of GCC English literature this year, and I flicked through it, and you've got poets like 
Percy Bysshe Shelley, William Blake, Robert Browning, Wordsworth, um, Tennyson, um, Wilfred Owen, uh, all great, great poets. But you know what? What that really stands out to me, Jim, is those. There's we were we were studying that when I was at school, which is fifty odd years ago. Yeah. Now, Surely the, the, a curriculum should have developed by now the, to take the, in that cultural development. No, entirely. And there are newer poems. You know, um, we've got poems in the anthology that were published in 2007, uh, 2013, uh, 93, which isn't particularly modern, 2006, uh, 2009, um you know, so there are newer poems in amongst it, but you know, you're comparing them to these great literary, yeah. You know, and and the question is, English literature as an exam and a subject is compulsory up to the age of sixteen. Yeah. What relevance is Percy Bysshe Shelley or Wilfred Owen or um, Tennyson or Browning going to have, or Wordsworth, have on the majority of 15 to 16-year-olds in today's society. Well, it won't, will it? It absolutely won't. When there are so many contemporary poets who are great that could be in there. Mm. And also, I, I have to question, because no doubt a knowledge of the English language and the ability to read is essential to all, but is it... In-depth knowledge of Shakespeare and Dickens and Bronte and the likes, a compulsory part of our curriculum? Is that relevant? It shouldn't be. Should There should be, for, for kids that love that sort of stuff, if they're exposed to it, and for kids that love that sort of stuff, they should be, they should be able to go and do that. But it is not the way to engage a modern generation into literature and get them to take on and develop a love of reading. It just is counterproductive. So I'd like to, whilst we're on this topic of exams and literature, I'd like to draw our attention to those younger readers then. Mm. Because most recently, um, only last week, uh, Year 6, which is the 10, 11-year-olds, Wendy, mm. sat there, sat papers. Yeah. Standard average size testing, okay? Mm. Um, standardised average testing. And, they, and they've taken them all in that one week, and one of them was an English reading paper, which has caused uproar amongst parents, pupils, teachers, and head teachers, because it's been deigned far, far too hard. There have been claims that it has left students broken, their mental well-being and mental health damaged and scarred, and then demoralise. Now, I don't believe we should be dumbing down the way we teach, but we certainly shouldn't be demoralising and shattering children. Well, what's but what's the point of an exam? Uh, the point of an exam is to test progress and and to see that kids are developing in the right way and at the right pace. It isn't to tick a box. It isn't, or shouldn't be. Um, to ensure that a school gets higher up a league table than it is already. And it strikes me that that's what it's become. It's be- it's not about the children's development and how they're going. It's about how a school does in those league tables. And so 
if your school does badly, then that's not right. And so kids are pushed and pressured into passing the exam, not for themselves and their own development, but because there's a lot at stake for the school. Now, I would argue that that is not right. Yeah, I completely agree. And I know for a fact, through having witnessed it myself, I've never done it myself, but I've witnessed it, and I've also seen um, senior management in school pressure me to try and do, tr- they've tried to pressure me to do this myself, and I've seen um, it uh, time and time again um, through other co- friends and colleagues who are in the industry where they are be they are teaching to a test. Yeah, they are not teaching a love of reading, they're not teaching a love of the language, they are not teaching how to read, how to understand, they are teaching how to pass a test. Yeah. And you're entirely right, Wendy. I mean, when I did my teacher training, there's two types of assessment we do, uh, formative assessment and summative assessment. Mm. Formative assessment is where we assess somebody so we can then make a judgment call on what they need next and give them those next steps in learning because we've gone, right, I've done the assessment, and the point of that is so that I can inform what I do next with this child. Yeah. The other type of testing is summative assessment. Summative assessment happens at the end, it's after the teaching is finished, and it plays no further part in the learning. And you hit the nail exactly on the head about when we test children at the end of year six. Because that data does not get handed up that, you know, they're given a level mm. and a lot of secondary schools now disregard that and do their own assessment. They're doing their own, yeah. Now, that, that speaks volumes, Jim. If professionals are not confident and don't have faith in the results, then you tell me how good that test is. Entirely. And I have witnessed firsthand very poor administration of the, of the SAT tests. Mm. Um, where teachers are breaking the rules in order to give their pupils better results. Um, and the fact that anyone feels the need to perform in such a way is terrible. Absolutely. Um, anyway, we've, we've decried the education system for long enough. Um, <laughs> I would, I would, as a postscript to that conversation, just say we are blessed with a nation of hard-working teachers who work under very challenging conditions because of the system that they're in. Uh, And this is not a criticism on them, but the system they are within. Quick, you must listen to Microbrew Radio, and there's only one way. Well, actually, there are three ways. It's microbrewradio.com. You can listen on there, or we have an app, which is available on the App Store and the Google Play Store. Get it now. And of course, there's Alexa. Simply say, launch micro brew radio. Do it now. It's the only way you'll survive here on micro brew radio. Um, so let's turn our attention to what has Granny read. Well, in the last week, Granny's read three. Fairly hefty tones. All right. She's read Susan Salas's No Man's Island, which I don't think I would enjoy because on the front cover it says Perfect for Fans of Maeve Binchy. And right. yeah, I don't think it would be my cup of tea. But she's read that. 
Um, she's read uh, Kate Furnival's The Liberation, uh, which she really praised. It's about Italy in 1945 and a one woman's experience of her her time of the liberation of Italy and her chance to save herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, and you'll be glad to hear this, Wendy, she's yep. now read Sovereign by C.J. Sands. Oh, that's that's a great one. Yeah. She says absolutely the best so far out of those she's read of yeah. his. She's really yeah, enormous. I'm not surprised at that. Um, and the next... The next three in the series, which is as far as he's published, I think. Yes, it is. Um, are winging their way to us from a very reputable bookseller. I shan't say which. Fantastic. So Granny's been very busy reading um, and she's already deep into her next one. I can't think what it is now, but I know she's deep into another. Um, so I mean, we've not done this feature on the programme in some time, Wendy. And I think maybe this is a good time to finish with this feature um, and to bring it back. But what's caught your eye? What have you not been able to resist and you've added to that towering pile of to-be-reads? Um, well, Jim, it's really funny you should say that because um, I've been picking some um, unusual non-fiction um, to Ooh. read. Um, and it, I've, been, um, I've been doing quite a bit around marketing recently. And um, I'm really intrigued by the way that businesses and and commerce use social media. So um, I've been um, looking at a couple of those. Um, One is a book called Priceless Publicity, um, which I've really, uh, really sort of um, intrigued me because it is about trying to think around how you get your head around this developing thing called social media and how you use it for your own benefit if you're in business. So um so that one was was quite interesting. Um and then a book called Atomic Habits, which is a about the way in which the we we get sucked into behaving badly habitually, even though it does us no favours. And mm. we know it does us no favours but we just can't seem to stop ourselves. And Atomic Habits is um, about how you change those habits. Um, if they're not delivering what you need them to, how do you change? So um, so those are a couple of things that have found their way into my um, my to-be-read pile uh, this week. Um, how about you? Well, I've been, you know, I've been looking at a series of books that I own part of. Mm. And I've been going... Oh, there's a few more in that series now. I could do with just topping that collection up, even though there's about four or five to be read before I get to those. Mm. Oh, I, I really ought to like just top up those series, bring them up to date. So the Chronicles of St Mary's, uh, the uh, Rivers of London series. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking, I was looking at, um, oh, I. We know I'm a big Harry Potter fan. We know I love the books. But there have recently been bringing out uh, illustrated copies of the story. Oh, right. And they're hardback, and they are illustrated so beautifully. Oh, wow. Like, it Not is a proper... Oh, it's a proper colour, beautifully painted, every page. 
and they're really, really beautiful, Wendy. And I, I, I've got the first two. Uh, they've been bought me as presents. So I was updating my wish list that family members might look at as birthdays and Christmases arrive and appear, mm. and adding the next couple to that list. Um, because even though I've not, um, you know, I don't need, I don't need them because I, I've got the original hardbacks that I had when I, when it first came out, I've got the uh, more recent softback edition came out and now I'm, I'm getting this edition. Um, but there's just something really beautiful about owning those books. And also, you know, ultimately, those stories are stories to read to children. Yes, yeah, we absolutely. Earlier to share and to have the pictures alongside it, particularly for the younger listener. Mm. Oh, I'll yeah. have to have a look at those, Jim. They sound good. Oh, they're really beautiful, Andy. They're definitely worth the money. Um, but yes, I'm trying not to add too much to the towering book pile at the moment because I am conscious of just how high it's got. <laughs> um. But hopefully, over the next few weeks, we'll be doing a few to we'll be knocking a few of those off. Yeah, that now, would be good. Um, we've got some exciting reads coming in the in the few weeks. Now we've got a local author coming up, haven't we, Wendy? We have. Yes, we've got Shelley Wilson next week. Um, and Shelley writes uh young adult fantasy. Um, and she has two series. She writes. Um, about a Viking princess. So there's a series about a Viking princess and there is also a sort of vampire series too. Um, so she does those sort of um, books. But she also writes self-help books and she's a mentor for people who want to write their own business book. So Shelley's a, a good all-rounder um, and I think she'll be really interesting to talk to. Well, I'm thoroughly looking forward to that. And you know, I'm thoroughly looking forward to dipping my teeth into some young adult fiction. Mm. Something I haven't done in a little while, um, as as the modern parlance would be, it's been a minute. Um, <laughs> and I think, I yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So, ladies and gents, Madame and Monsieur, Manheron and Frauen, until next week when we will be joining Shay Wilson to discuss um, one of her very own books. Until then... I hope you have the very best of good reading. Yeah, happy reading, everybody. This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton on Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say, Alexa, play Microbrew radio and if you like what you hear please let us know on facebook instagram twitter and tiktok thanks <laughs>